Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at the first six verses as I mentioned earlier. I want you to notice the very first verse of this uh, 10th chapter. I, Paul, myself. There's a change that is uh, taking place here in the book. He has finished up this matter of the gift that's going to the needy saints in Judea. Now Paul turns to defend his own apostleship. In the last four chapters, from chapters 10 to 13, deal with this matter of Paul's apostleship. That uh, it begins here with a very emphatic, I, Paul, myself. And here's a clear change from the we and the us of previous chapters. For example, in chapter 7, verse 13, we read, And besides our own comfort, we, re we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. We, our I, I think many times Paul uses the editorial we because he doesn't want to focus on himself. He doesn't want to always be saying I, 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 I. Uh, sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with people, you can tell how stuck they are on themselves by how many times they refer to themselves in their conversations. And I think Paul wanted to avoid that. I think some of the we's and the hours, however... Uh, we we's and the hours we hours uh, the we's and and the uh, hours uh, hours <laughs> not time here uh, we're talking about here but but uh, th these are a reference to Paul and his associates that are with him but I think of many times Paul is just avoiding the use of I uh, as we learned here at the table we 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 need to die to self. We need to become others conscious. In fact, this is the one of the critical things of Christianity is that we stop focusing on us and start looking out for the welfare of others and seeing, wanting them to succeed and be happy and fulfilled and so, so on and so forth. But, but here the apostle, though, is turning to himself. And he's turning to himself because he is setting up here a defense against those who have accused him of, of uh, being a false apostle there in the church at Corinth. And this abrupt change here of mood in these final chapters has led some critics to argue that these chapters are actually a second or a separate letter, a lost, severe letter. For example, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, we read, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This was added, as some say, to this epistle at a later date. This letter. So here, Paul had, was referring to a letter that he's already written, but that letter now is, was added to this letter at some later date, tacked on to the end. And there, there's not a few that hold to this opinion. 
I, I personally do not hold to that, and I'll, I'll explain it here in, in a moment. But uh, notice it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, this, with sexually immoral people. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think the letter that you're referring to here is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But he says, I wrote to you in a letter, in my letter, not to associate with immoral people. That's 1 Corinthians. Is he referring to that letter? And I think he is. But, it, but it's kind of confusing. It sounds like he's writing to them in, in 1 Corinthians about a letter he's already written to them. But I, I really believe that is the reference to the, that in that letter is to that letter in the seventh chapter. So that's actually early in the letter. And why would he do that? It's it maybe I don't know. I can't really uh, understand it other than the fact that perhaps uh, he was he added that in his composition of the letter. Paul didn't write them himself. He dictated them. In fact, he mentions that many times. And then he'll sign the letter or he'll end the letter by a, a statement, I, my, I, Paul, myself, added this on here so that you'll know that this, is, this letter came from me. But uh, he would dictate the letters. And so maybe he went through, he was going back through there and correcting it. I don't know. But I do believe this. In 2 Corinthians chapter. 7 verse 8 says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not re uh, regret it. Though I did regret it, I felt bad about it. That's I think, is what he's saying. For I see that the letter grieved you only for a little while. Yeah, you felt bad too. But the Spirit of God worked in your hearts in such a way that you overcame your bad feelings and got right with God on this matter. And that's the point. But here the argument rests on the perceived analysis of the subject matter of the letter. Chapter of 1 Corinthians. For example, first, the first six chapters, Paul, uh, it does constitute already a defense of his apostolic authority that was questioned by some in Corinth. So why would Paul... Go back to that to end the letter, is the question. And that defense in the first six chapters here also includes the apostles' relief that his rebuke of their errors in 1 Corinthians resulted in genuine repentance. 7 verse 9, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. In other words, uh, we didn't we didn't hurt you by pointing out to you your sin in this matter, but the Holy Spirit used our rebuke to correct you, and now you're better off for it. That's what it's all about. So. He appealed to the church to understand that they're having been reconciled to Christ in the day of salvation, which chapter 6, verse 2. He was also guiding them in their repentance to pursue holiness 
as a servants as servants of God. So in chapter seven, verse one, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As Ron pointed out it again at the table, this is our this is our life. We get saved and it's all about heaven. No, it's not just all about heaven. It's about changing me here to make me fit for heaven. And this is what Paul is saying here. We have promises. So because of these promises of glory and of being with God forever in, in a glorious eternity, let's... Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body. Fight the flesh here. Bring body and spirit into line with the will of God. Pursue holiness without, as Paul says there in Hebrews, pursuing holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And bringing this holiness into completion in the fear of God. That's our life here. Do you fear God? Does your, does your fear of God bring you into a line with His holy and worthy directives? See, this is, the, this is the important thing. So having then concluded this concern, Paul charged the church to fulfill their promise to support the suffering saints in Judea, which is the last chapters 7 through uh, 9 here that we've been looking at. And here he, he suggested, it is suggested by those who are advancing his theory, that the last chapter here, chapter 9, should be the last chapter of the book, and what seems to be a closing, because Paul says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Did Paul mean that to be the closing? That's not how Paul usually closes the letter. He closes it by by shifting to more personal things. Hey, greet so and so, and hey, tell so and so we really enjoyed their lunch in their home, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, all of these you know, the brethren here greet you, and and so on. That's not how it ends, but the Second Corinthians does end that way. So I don't really think that that this glorious pronouncement, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, is a conclusion of the latter. It's just rejoicing over the joy and the privilege of giving because God has given a supreme gift. A gift that can't even be expressed. It's so great. Should we not also be willing to give of our own Resources that others may be satisfied as well. So, I don't think that's the end of it. And it should be also observed that in these final four chapters, Paul seems to, to ch a change in his demeanor. Well, I don't question that. He is now after the enemies of the gospel. And he's not going to treat them with the same loving disposition he has toward the toward the Corinthian believers. He appears uh, indeed to be rather aggressive. 
I mean, notice how he starts out. I pull myself. Kind of strong. And that perplexes some readers. Why would then he end a letter like this? Why would he, you know, why not end it with the, the giving part and, and then maybe go and talk about uh, others and uh, greeting others and, uh, and encouraging others like he does in normally in his letters. Why would he end it with this aggressive note? So that that would uh, lead some to believe that this was a letter tacked on. So the, that's that's the question. Does 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 actually constitute a different book that was added to this book? So here's how it would it would go. We'd have 1 Corinthians... Then the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians. Then chapters uh, 1 through 9 of 2 Corinthians would be 3 Corinthians. According to this. Is, that, is this plausible? Personally, here's, my, here's why I, I, I do not believe that. I believe that when apostles wrote... They wrote under the inspiration of God. There is, there is even suggestion of a lost letter. A letter we do not have. Perhaps the one referenced in 1 Corinthians. Would, would the Holy Spirit use an apostle to write a letter and then lose it? <laughs> I don't think so. I think we have every letter that God intends us to have at the, at the, from the pen of His servants, the apostles, who were born along, holy men of God, born along to assure us that their writing was indeed the very Word of God. There aren't any lost letters or lost books that somehow we're going to discover later to find out that what we have read was wrong. <laughs> no. I don't believe this was a, a, a last letter. The best explanation would be that this last section is aimed at the subversive element in the church, but it includes the whole church to alert them of the dangers of their spiritual infection. You are tolerating some men whom you need to weed out and disassociate. They were attacking Paul. Now Paul is, is again defending himself, but he's not really defending himself as he is demonstrating that what he is is a servant of God and God himself has put the stamp on him. Paul is not, Paul is not su suggesting that he made himself an apostle of Christ. So the important truth here is that all believers have enemies that want to destroy them. Jesus warned, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But 
not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Notice, endurance. I really, I've said this many, many times. I'll say it again. Perseverance and endurance is the sign that your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine. Because when the hard times come, the unbeliever falls away. He can't take it anymore. The believer has the Spirit of God in him and the Spirit of God enables him to endure to the end. So that Jesus said, He that endures to the end will be saved. It's not your endurance that saves you. It's your endurance that is the evidence that you have been saved and it proves your salvation. Satan's objective is to destroy the church by infiltrating it. That, by the way, that was Luke 21, 16 to 19. And uh, here's another reference from John 15, 18 and 19. But if the world hates you, you know that it, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his, you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you think the world's going to be your friend, you've got a big mistake. You've made a big mistake. Satan's objective is to destroy the church by infiltrating it with supposed believers. And this is a problem. I think lots of churches have, are filled with with people who claim to be believers, but they're really emissaries of Satan designed to hurt the church, not help it, to pervert and distort the truth. And sadly, there are many men in the pulpit who, because they don't want to upset the apple cart, go along with the compromise. I think Jesus is going to have to deal with that too because his the Bible says his bride has made herself ready. So the response of the saints must be not be a reaction to the opposition, but confidence in the authority and the power of God, which he has given to his servants to fulfill their ministry. We don't react. We just rest with confidence. So the will of God will be done. I'm going to tell you something. The will of God will be done. But it all but it does not it does not leave us out of spiritual warfare. We are going to be in the battle. That's why Paul said, put on the whole armor of God and stand firm in the evil day. That you may be able to stand firm in the evil day. Not to deal with with uh, the enemies around us is to lose the war. And in our context, Paul explains how believers are to carry out their responsibilities. Well, let me... I, I, I skipped a line here. Here is the point. Here's the point. Responding to our enemies in the flesh is to lose the battle. But not to deal with them is to lose the war. 
so Paul is telling us in these first six chapters how to carry out that responsibility. So let's get into it. First of all, is an appeal to God-given authority. Paul is, st is standing up for himself now, not for his flesh, but he is declaring the fact, I, Paul, myself, am a servant of God. I have many enemies that are trying to tell me it's not so, but I'm, I'm telling you it is so. I, by, and then notice by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, I myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when I am away from you. He's not bragging about something. He's making a statement. He said, when I'm with you, I'm humble. But when I'm dealing with you, it's boldness. This almost seems contradictory. But this is the point Paul's trying to make here. How do, how do people in the flesh deal with their enemies? By showing the same animosity and hatred toward them that they're expressing to you. Getting angry. Shouting back. Acting in the same acting in the same manner. Paul says this is not how we do it. Here, here's where people get confused with Christians. Paul said, here's, here's how I appear. I appear like Jesus appeared. Meek and gentle. Jesus was meek and gentle. And that really upset the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. They couldn't figure him out. He didn't act like Christ. Like this strong, sword-swinging enemy of the Gentiles. He was gentle and meek. Paul said, I'm, I am entreating, I entreat you. Now here, here, this is interesting. This word entreat here is, is a strong word. It's a, it's a declarative. Here is something you need to do. Do it. It's authoritative. I'm entreating you by all the authority of heaven. That this is the right thing. This is the truth. Do it. But how do I do it? I do it with meekness and gentleness. And that's confusing. That's not how you assert these things. Like you do it like I just did it. Which is my, probably not the way to do it. <laughs> See? He's pointing here to himself as one who represents his who was represented to his as, by his detractors as base. He said he was base. Look at chapter uh, verse eleven here of this ninth chapter. Let such a person understand that we say by letter uh, that what that what we say by letter when absent 
we do when present. In other words, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account or base. But he said, the reason why I do it this way is that what we say by letter and what, and what we do by present seems contradictory. But it's not. And what's the distinction? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, when I'm with you, I appear to you base, weak, contemptible. But then when I write a letter to you, you say, whoa! What's the difference? It's the Spirit of God. Paul's saying, I'm not asserting myself. I'm asserting the truth. I'm telling you what you need to hear. And when I'm with you personally, I'm going to do it like Jesus did. I'm going to be gentle and I'm going to be meek. But when I write to you, that's the Spirit of God guiding me that, and that's His own words. His words to you. And when you read them, ooh, they're weighty and powerful. You see the, you, you see the difference here? Paul's motivation was to establish them in the truth. But he's going to do it with a pattern not like his enemies. We read there in Psalms 18, verse 35, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. See, there's where they get where Christians uh, can't uh, confound the world. They confuse the world. You got you guys appear to be a bunch of weak need mamby pamby cowards. No, we're not. We're not. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So then, Paul's motivation to establish them in their faith in and conduct and conduct to conform to the standards of Christ was as revealed and directed by the Holy Spirit. His approach to them in his entreaty served as an example, which also conformed to his principles that he desired of, what he desired of them as evidenced in Christ. He wanted them to be the same, meek and gentle. And he later asserted his God-given authority to address the church regarding his detractors. So in, in uh, verse number 8, even if I boast a little, and when Paul uses the term boast, he is, he's using their language, but he doesn't mean what they mean by it. Paul said, I could, I could brag and boast with the best of them, but I'm not going to do that. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and for not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. 
So I am asserting. It's for your benefit that I'm asserting this. And not for my personal boasting. The Corinthian believers were not to be were not to to judge things by their appearance. He says, "Look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are we." Think about it. So are we. So meekness is defined here as strength under control. Here's a here's a soldier. He's fit for battle. And woe be to the man he confronts. But he doesn't appear that way. Meekness is an internal strength that doesn't appear strong to those observing him. Gentleness, how is on the other hand, is a quality of behavior. That's external. Meekness is internal. Gentleness is external. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Or Matthew chapter 12, verse 19 and 20. He will not quarrel nor cry, nor, nor will any uh, one hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings, and notice, until he brings justice to victory. Oh, I tell you what, Jesus is just this weakling, weakling. Ah, you have, you misjudged Jesus. He's already won the battle. And he's going to bring justice to victory. Don't fool with Jesus. You think he's weak mamby-pamby? You've got a second thought. He's the king of the ages. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he does not wield his sword in vain. Yes. Meekness is illustrated by the powerful stallion. So trained that it yields to the slightest nudge. Of the rider. Nowhere is this quality more perfectly exhibited than in Jesus. This quality uh, must be characterized, must characterize every servant of God as well. However, it must not be taken for timidity, which here is coupled with his appearance, his base. Paul said, I'm not timid. And if I need to, I can come on very strong. But that's not for your benefit. I'm not timid. Paul admitted that his appearance did not inspire worldly confidence. But his letters were perceived as bold. 
For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. And Paul said there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. But it had, that did not have to do with his personal and expectations of himself. It had to do with what he perceived with respect to the receipt of the gospel. So Paul's manner then of appeal in, uh, was confident of the authority of the bo and boldness of God himself. I beg you. And here, this is interesting. The first entreat, I entreat you. In other words, I'm, I'm telling you that here's something you better sit up and pay attention to. This is from God. But I'm going to do it in a way that is humble. So he says in the second verse, I beg of you. The word beg there is an interesting word. It comes from uh, diomai. It's diomai in the Greek, and it's an appeal. It's often translated to pray or to supplicate. Paul entreated them by a powerful divine authority, but acted with humble appeal in their presence so as not to appear overly assertive, which would, could be mistaken for anger. And in their presence, not so much, and, and in their presence would be taken wrongly. He preferred not to rely on an apostolic authority to, to resolve problems. Hey, I'm the boss. I am an apostle. You got that? Listen up. No. Rather, he, he is going to lean on the Holy Spirit of God to do the work. He was not, but he was not averse to take exercising authority when it was necessary, which is going to be evident in these last chapters as he deals with these false apostles. Whatever method he used, the Corinthians must never confuse his weapons for, for those characterized by worldly standards. He's not gonna he's gonna he's gonna accomplish far more than the world could ever hope to, but he's gonna do it without their standards. So the explanation of authority, dictative power, we need to move along here. The nature of the ministry is defined by Paul as warfare. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroying strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We're, to, we're pursuing holiness in the fear of God, see? And our obedience has to be complete here as a reference to spiritual discipline. When we've learned spiritual discipline, this is what it's all about. We live in the world. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. We're dealing with spiritual enemies for spiritual purposes. Thus, we must never rely on carnal weapons like arguments and arguments and anger and retribution 
No, those must not characterize any of our activity. We are, our flesh is to be crucified. It's affection, it's affections and desires. We're to respond to the enemy in the flesh and use the same tactics would only aggravate the situation. So Paul defines then spiritual weapons as having divine power which effectively accomplishes God's purpose. Verse 4. Paul's weapons were, in the language of the American, I mean the authorized version, mighty through God. I like that. Mighty through God. Meaning that instrumentally they were made powerful by God and in respect were potent in the eyes of God. In interest they were effective in God's service. Here Paul uses a Hebraism, divinely or supremely or supernaturally powerful. Jonah 3.3 3. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He walked into this heathen town and began to preach. Yet, 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think Jonah was fearful. <laughs> I think he was very nervous. I think Jonah expected that they're going to retaliate and probably throw him out of the city or kill him. Nineveh was a big place. And he's walking through this city, preaching. Forty days and this city will be overthrown. But what happened? God was in this business. And the people put on sackcloth and ashes and repented. And God spared the city. Didn't spare it forever, but he did spare it. The result, the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. I, I watched a very interesting video and uh, there were six young adults sitting around the table there and the girl that was apparently the young woman that was apparently leading the thing, and I, I, they said from the, the commentators ex, said that she does this in a lot of them. But uh, there was a Christian, and I don't the one man I don't know what he was. The other the other girl was a Jewish, and then there was uh, also one of these transgendered people, and and another. A young woman that they didn't reference in the video at all, but the young woman that was in charge there, uh, she she said to the Christian, "You're supposed to be a Christian. You claim to be that God has saved you and that you that you're a, a, a Christian. You need to be more tolerant and understanding." And. What what I really appreciated was the fact that this, I mean, you could hear the anger in her voice. You could hear the hostility that she had toward him. You think you're a Christian? You're supposed to be a Christian? And he just he just looked at her and very gently said to her, "Is God tolerant?" Well, yes, I believe he is. 
He made us all in His likeness. Lesbians, transgenders, everybody. They're all children of God. I'm not quoting her exactly, but that's what she was implying. And he came back to her and he said to her again, he says, is God tolerant? You see, there are an awful lot of Christians, you, we, we just expect. that, uh, the, And this is what the world expects of us, is that we cave into them. We, we're, we're understanding and we're tolerant. We're supposed to be. So we just accept any and everybody. And he says, is God tolerant? And then he proceeded. God created man in his image. Male and female. And then he, sta- and then it's, he stated over in Leviticus. Chapter 20, verse 13. The prohibition against a man lying with a man as a man lies with a woman. And Lord, then she got really hostile right there. She said, uh, the Bible has been translated thousands of times. Retranslated thousands of times. It's been changed. She said, it's my understanding that in Leviticus, the original word there is a child. Man should not leave, sleep with a child as he sleeps with a woman. Well, they want to do that too. <laughs> that's, the, that's the sad part. But then the Jewish girl stepped in. She said, you know, she said, I've read the Bible uh, many times and I've read it in the original language. She says, the word there is man. It's always been man. Period. <laughs> and I said, you know, when I, when I listened to that whole debate, it, it, would, it was, to me, it was fantastic. This man simply and calmly reasserted the truth of Scripture. She protested. That the original prohibition that a man should not should not have sex with a child, and that the translation was changed by bigots who rejected the rights of people to determine their own will in the matter. And it was very, it was very evident that Scripture has had great power and overwhelmed the young woman's arguments. She was at the law which promoted greater anger and frustration. That's why they hate Christians. It's the power of the Word of God. It's not my holiness. Because I'm certainly not holy as I need to be. But when I preach to proclaim the truth of the Word of God, that's what has the power. So the effective spiritual weapons here is the tearing down of satanic strongholds. It's what does it? It's the Word of God. These strongholds are the bulwarks of Satan and that appear to frustrate the purpose of God. They appear to frustrate the purpose of God. Two are mentioned. Imaginations. That's arguments of worldly wisdom. Well, if God created us, then He created us in His image, then He, then he created everybody. 
So it doesn't matter what you, what, whether you identify as a man or a woman or what you identify as. You can even be, identify as a cat, like they say in some schools, they're putting litter boxes in the hallways. <laughs> because some children are identifying themselves as cats or dogs. C ridiculous. But here's the, here's the point. This imaginations, this is what we're up against. The imaginations of the world. I can be whatever I feel like being. No, you can't. The wisdom, Paul referred to back in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 19 and 20, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. <laughs> Ah, that's why we need to be faithful to use the Word of God. In Job chapter, uh, that's Job chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 13, he's quoting there, he's quoting, he catches the wise in their craftiness, he's quoting here from Job 5, 13. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And there he's quoting from Psalm 94, verse 11. See, Paul's using the Word of God. The lofty opinions, which are pretensions or acts or attitudes that form a barrier against the gospel, the knowledge of God. This is what we're up against. So the evidence then of the effectiveness of these weapons is their result, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Excuse me, I goof there, it's the two weapons mentioned are imaginations, which are arguments of worldly wisdom, and lofty opinions, which are pretensions or acts or attitudes that form a barrier against the gospel. I'm good. We're good people. Right, do you keep the law? Yes, we, we, I keep the commandments. Pretensions. Well, yeah, I, let's look at the Word of God, see if you really do. Then the evidence... The evidence of effectiveness of these weapons is their result. Taking captive every thought to obey Christ and overcoming all discipline by, as, by acts, that is, acts of discipline, as verse 6 there, we do this through spiritual discipline. So, God's weapons are no match for Satan's strongholds. And thus, all who are called, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, falling to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the called then, because of these weapons of warfare, are brought into the obedience of faith. So let me just conclude. Paul warned that he was ready to use his divinely given authority to punish as through church discipline at the proper time he would also gave opportunity for stragglers to join the obedient before God acted in that manner. Trust that was clear. Father, thank you. 
for your word. We, we must act like Jesus act, acted before the world. We must refrain from anger. We must not be vengeful. We must not throw tantrums. But be kind and gentle. Not compromising. For sometimes gentleness and kindness is confused with compromising and sometimes even Christians compromise in order that they might appear to be kind and gentle. No, we must be meek and gentle in, like Christ was as we deal with people, but we must do so with the power of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, which is not gentle. It's weighty and powerful. And it accomplishes the job. Lord, give us strength in these days. Give us the power to be obedient. We just praise you and we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in us because of the sacrifice of our Savior in our place. We ask it in Jesus' name.